Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this morning in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Hear now the reading of God's holy Word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we ask, O Lord, that you might illumine our hearts, that we might read, mark, and inwardly digest all that you have for us according to your truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's important that we remind ourselves, where are we in the book of Acts? If you were with us this morning in Sunday school, Pastor Smith, speaking about covenant theology, reminded us of how Luke begins this book with a promise, a picture of what the gospel is doing. And that is in chapter 1, verse 8. And that's where we read that there is a promise, that is the Holy Spirit, it's coming, and it will make you witnesses, according to Luke, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's important that you keep that in mind, because what we're looking at this morning is a transition event. What is about to take place, we need to be reminded of what Luke has already said. Pentecost has happened. There's been... Persecutions. Some have been imprisoned. Some have been beaten. There's been problems. One commentator would note that there have been what you might call three different satanic attacks against the church, that being Ananias and Sapphira. There is beatings, and perhaps the last being a distraction for the cares of the world and forsaking the word and the preached word of God. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, many of you probably have heard of him, perhaps even read something of his. He has, depending on what set that you would own, a three or perhaps the six volume set of his sermons on the book of Acts. What's remarkable about that six volume set is it's his sermons only on the first eight chapters of Acts. I promise that's not where we're headed. But he does have six different sermons just on this passage. 
One of the things that he says about where we find ourselves is this. The church has had to fight for her life from the very beginning. We have seen how the apostles were arrested and thrown into prison, how they were threatened, how they were commanded to stop preaching from the moment it was born. The church has faced a world that has done everything it could to exterminate Christianity. Let me read that last sentence. From the moment it was born, the church has faced a world that has done everything it could to exterminate Christianity. Now, perhaps you hear that and you might say, that's terrible. How terrible that that is the experience in the work of the world upon the church. What a depressive way to think about the church. That is perhaps one option. Or perhaps you could say, how glorious is the sovereignty of God that there is nothing in the world's schemes that can ever, ever beat or diminish or according to Lloyd-Jones, exterminate Christianity and the church because the one who stands behind her will not fail. So we are in a transition we have been in this place of Jerusalem seeing a concentration of ministry and what is taking place today and for the next couple of weeks as we will look at the sermon that follows is this transition of here we go. We are about to move to Judea and Samaria. If we want to get there, we must have what takes place today. That is the story of Stephen. It is it's a short story. In fact, you only read about Stephen three times outside of Acts chapter 6 and 7. Interestingly enough, you only read about Stephen in the book of Acts. This insignificant figure that we might say has quite the influence and impact on the church and you might even dare say eternity. You could perhaps be bold to say without Stephen... There is no Apostle Paul. And so what we are looking at this morning is what is Stephen's life all about? We read that he is full of things. What was the purpose of Stephen being filled with? And I want to argue that he was filled with something or some things in order that he might be faithful. He has a life that teaches us how to live well or live in faith. And in fact, as we'll see, he also has a death that shows us how to die well and die in faith. So let's look together at our two headings this morning. What was Stephen filled with and how was he faithful in it? We read in verse 5, I understand that that is a little bit uh, behind where we are, but we get a description from Luke of the kind of person Stephen was. In verse 5, we will read that Stephen, he is a man full of faith. Stephen is a man full of faith. That is the very nature of what every person needs. That as we enter into the world, we enter into the perfect righteous judgment of God because we are sinners. And we need faith. Faith that justifies. Faith alone in Christ alone. 
We need faith that trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We need faith that trusts in what we might say the imputation, the the counting of righteousness to our own record because Christ gave of his life. He paid for our sin. The author to Hebrews, he'll say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith makes us right with God. And Luke is saying, Stephen is a man full of faith. It's the purpose and point of the Spirit in our life. That acronym, perhaps you've taught your children. Faith, forsaking all, I take him. Embracing entirely the person and work of Christ. But when Luke says that Stephen is a man full of faith, I think he has more in mind just than having faith that justifies. He doesn't have less than that, but you and I understand that there is a sense in which we have faith, and yet our experience might be different. It might change. It might alter. We have different degrees, you might say, of faith. Maybe you can resonate with the father in the gospel of Mark, whose son is in desperate need of healing. And what does he tell the Lord Jesus? I do believe. Help my unbelief. You see, often in trials, in tribulations, in struggles, we might have doubt. How do I trust you, Jesus, with what I see in front of me? It doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to be assured of faith, but our experience varies. That's why the scriptures are clear on that. Jesus talks about people with different experiences of faith, doesn't he? There are people who have strong faith. He talks about his disciples, and at times he calls them what? Weak in faith. Even at times he says, you have no faith or little faith. But yet you have faith. It's not the amount of faith that saves. We should be clear on that. It's the person in whom you have faith that saves. Weak faith and strong faith can both be saving faith as long as it is in the person and work of Christ Jesus. But what is Luke saying here when he says that he's full of faith? Maybe the experience of marriage could be helpful. If you have a covenantal view that you are promised to your spouse, held together by the grace and work of God. You say at your wedding, these are your vows. You promise to do them. And at the moment, both of you are assured, the other person loves me. They have promised themselves to me. But what happens when conflict comes? Perhaps our experience of what it means that we are loved challenges us. I've heard it said before, maybe it's true of women, I don't know, might not even be true of all men, but that when people are playing with their wedding rings, they're often thinking of their spouse. But it's a reminder of covenant, of promise, of faith, of certainty, isn't it? Because you have this picture, this promise that is on your hand, that when things are hard and things are difficult or things are strange, you are reminded But there is one who loves me. And that is what 
Luke is saying here of Stephen. He is reminded. He knows fully in faith, both in saving faith and in the experience of faith, there is one who loves him, one who is embedded within his very life. Stephen is prepared to do whatever the task is at hand because he knows the one in him is greater than the one persecuting him. He has a full sense of faith in its certainty, in its salvation, and even in its experience of it at this moment. He's full of faith. Luke also says in verse 5 that he's not just a man full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a term that Luke has used often in this book of Acts, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. Some try to argue, you see, This is the argument for a need of a second conversion. You need more of the Holy Spirit. You need to have him again. That is not at all what Luke is saying. What Luke is simply saying is this. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and everything that God does in you is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You and I never receive a quarter of the Spirit. We don't get a tenth of them. We don't get half of them. We get the fullness of the Spirit in our life. That does not mean you and I depend fully on him, but it does not negate the fact that he is fully within you. God never has one foot in one camp and the other foot in another. He's all in. And if you questioned it, look at the cross. He's never questioning whether or not he's doing what is best for his people and for his own glory. And so Luke is simply saying, all that you need for preparation and supplies. You have it. You have it. And it's in the ministry of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. There's a gentleman named Donald McLeod. He is offering his commentation on Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 11. That is where you can get the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 7 and Jesus is talking, and he's talking about fathers, right? He says, you know, if you are a good father and and your child says, I want bread, you don't give him a stone. Or, you know, according to Luke, he asked for an egg. You don't give him a scorpion. But Luke offers a slightly different translation at the end. What does he say? Though you are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father, what? You see, Matthew says, give good gifts Luke challenges your thought of what good gifts are. Luke says, how much more will he give you the Holy Spirit for those who ask? This is McLeod's point on that verse. He says, these people, he's talking about the audience in which Jesus is talking about here. These people are already saved. They were already Christians. They already had the Spirit. Yet they were to ask for him. They were to seek him. And they were to do so with all the earnestness and importunity of a child seeking food. The Holy Spirit is not something God's children can do without. He is indispensable, nor is he something they can store up. They need more and more. They need again and again. And the only way that we can ensure that they are always full is to be always asking. That is the picture of what Stephen is filled with. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
He is wanting more. He is seeking more. He is asking more. I want more again and again. He's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 tells us he is full of grace and power. Grace, what is Luke saying here? It's a, it's a familiar word that we as Christians hear, and we often associate the word grace with this is what God has done on our behalf. We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. But according to the person and work of Christ, God shows us mercy and grace. That is not what Luke is saying here. That is how we tend to associate the term. But what the term means here, when he says he is full of grace, what he is describing is a different context. You see, that term, when it's not associated with salvation in Christ, what that term meant was, uh, it meant beauty. Symmetrical. Often you would find that is the description of the speech of a woman. Why do women have beautiful speech and men have something else? I don't know. But it was always associated with the speech of a woman. It was, it was winsomeness. One man would say it's, it's charm. What is Luke saying about Stephen? Stephen is full of charm, of winsomeness. It's this picture. Yes, grace is what paid for your sin. But grace also changes you. It doesn't just change your status from being an enemy of God to a child. It changes your spirit. You see, you are different, and therefore you live different. Grace changes us not just a status, but also our character. And what we hear of Stephen is he's charming, not in our sense of the word. He's winsome in the way in which he engages people. You wouldn't easily be mad at Stephen. You might at Paul, but not so much at Stephen. He's winsome. He's full of power. It's, it's code, that God is with him and he's working in him and he's working through him. It's the affirmation that the ministry of the gospel is going forward. He's a man full of wisdom and understanding. You can see that in verse 10. But what is the purpose of Stephen having all of these fillings of faith, of the spirit, of grace, of power, of wisdom? Why is he full? It's not so he can be full of himself. It's so that he can be faithful in times of opposition, in times of ministry. It's so that he might hold fast to his confession of faith. What is it that you believe, Christian? It could be said, Stephen, what is it that you believe? If you continue to read in Acts, you'll find out. He's going to preach. This is the truth of God's word. So he is filled with these things for the purpose of being faithful. How do you know? Because you read this story. You read the rest of what happens in Acts chapter 6. And what is it that we find? There's opposition. And maybe you're thinking, well, who would want to pick on Stephen? He's so charming. He's so winsome. And isn't that the point of godliness? That all who want to live a godly life 
will in fact be persecuted. Calvin's commentary, Calvin says that this is the new combat of the church. That the glory of the gospel is always joined with the cross of Christ. And it will be met with opposition in a diverse or several different troubles. And so Luke is trying to tell you here is the opposition Christian of which, in which you live. He speaks of the synagogue of the freedmen. Don't get lost in what he's trying to say here. Some people want to figure out how many synagogues are we talking about. I think Luke is really just talking about one synagogue with a group of people in it. And that's where you find the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and Cilicia and Asia. These are Hellenistic people. And Luke is trying to say, your church is full of Greek people. They live culturally Greek. They speak Greek. This is the world in which you are living, church. And what is interesting here, it's not a proven fact, but when Luke says, well, there's people from Cilicia there, what should you and I think? Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is the major city in the place of Cilicia. Is it possible that Paul, Saul at the time, is in the presence in which Stephen is about to preach? That the man in which he will come to Christ later on in a few chapters is in the very presence of this man full of faith, full of the Spirit. This is the opposition that comes. There's a dispute. They argue with Stephen. They call into question his interpretation of, of Jesus. They call into question his interpretation of the Old Testament. And what does Luke tell you? Their arguments would not work. They could not withstand the wisdom of Stephen. Now that's important to note, isn't it? Stephen doesn't have a seminary degree. Neither did any of the other apostles, by the way. Saul perhaps challenges that when he comes to Christ. They're full of wisdom because they're full in faith and in the Spirit. Now, in our day and age, we should probably comment, this is not meant to be a normal practice. This is to be a formation of the church. What am I talking about? You and I should always expect, let me say it again, you and I should always expect ministers of the gospel to be highly trained, highly examined, and highly called. You do not let men into the pulpit and into the office who have not been theologically trained and examined and called. You would not do this in any other area of your life. You would not seek an operation from someone who said, I did great at the game of operation. <laughs> you do not seek attorneys who are just good debate team members. Why would you ever let someone care for your soul who is not trained theologically? What you're seeing is the formation of the church, not the practice. Do not give your ear to those who are not in fact trained. It is dangerous and you need not do it. That is a side note, that was free. What is Luke saying about Stephen? He's saying it's a, it's a fulfillment to the promise. Do you remember that promise that Jesus offered them in Luke chapter 21? When the enemy's gonna come, 
when you're in a moment of trial and tribulation, do not worry about what you will say. The Holy Spirit will speak and no adversary, no enemy will be able to overtake it. That's all Luke is saying here. It's a fulfillment to the promise that Jesus has already offered the church. The priority is that if you want to be someone who is full of wisdom, of grace and power, you spend time with God in his word. And that's what Luke is simply saying. But stage one did not work for the opposition. So they went into phase two. They secretly instigate, or perhaps you might say bribe people to discredit Stephen. It's what many people would call the smear campaign. Let's Let's find people to say things that aren't true to entirely destroy his reputation. Let's get people to say that that Stephen is blaspheming against Moses and against God. But that doesn't work. And so phase three, they have him arrested and they bring him before the council. They have false witnesses there to testify that now he's not just blaspheming against Moses and God, he's blaspheming against the law and the temple. Is any of this starting to ring a bell? This is Luke part two. There was another person who experienced every single stage of this. His name was Jesus. What you are reading in the life of Stephen right here is a connection, a direct link to what it was like for Christ. It's the same council, the same Sanhedrin, the same high priest, the same people who marred the Son of God are going after the people of God. Right here. We're not far removed. And so Luke is saying, pay attention, Christian. If they persecuted the Son of God, they will in fact persecute you. Isn't it interesting that what you read most about the Apostle Paul in his doctrine is the union and communion with Christ. If he was here, do you remember what Luke tells you about Saul? We'll just call him Paul so we're all on the same page. What Paul's journey to Damascus was. What does Jesus tell Paul? Why do you persecute me? That is coming moments after his signature to the death of Stephen. Could he not see such a direct link from Stephen to Jesus that he understands that is what it means to be a Christian? That is our union and communion with Christ. We are so united to the blood of Christ, to the person of Christ, that we have all of the inheritance of the Son of God. And all that in which he suffered, we too might suffer of what it means to be full of faith, of spirit, of grace, of power, and of wisdom. Stephen is saying the same thing. These charges that are brought are a big deal. These are not like petty little warnings that you might get at a traffic stop. These are significant charges. Few things make the Jewish people more angry than talking about their outward practices, especially their rituals in the temple and their sacrifices. This is the same group of people in which Jesus said, 
I will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. You, you understand how they heard that. The temple of Herod, they've been building it for 46 years. What kind of bold statement would someone make? Now you and I know Jesus wasn't talking about that building. He was talking about his body. But what is it that they understand? Our outward righteousness, our outward practices mean so much they have forsaken what inwardly problems they have, the internal challenges and sin that sits in front of them. And all Jesus was saying was, these outward signs are going away because they will be fulfilled in me. If you want to worship, you come to me. If you want to be a child of God, you come to me. If you want to approach the throne of grace, you need no animal. You come to me. And that's the same thing that Stephen is going to say. You do not need a holy place or a holy of holies. That was torn. Come to Christ. And you and I need to hear that same word. That we aren't here to perfect our outward livings. If you want to worship the Son of God, you come to the Son of God. You do not clean up to come to church. You do not clean up to pray. You do not clean up to meet with God. You come to him and he cleans you inside and out. And that's all Stephen is saying here. It's a strong reminder because Stephen is going to experience the height of persecution. He's going to lose his life. And these are the charges, but these rarely are the charges against you and I. We're rarely being charged by people because we were full of charm, full of wisdom, full of grace. We often are being charged because we lack that. And I think what Luke is saying is if you want to live a godly life, this is what it will be like. To be full of grace, to be full of faith, you will in fact experience persecution, varying degrees. I'm not here to tell you what it exactly will look like, but you will experience persecution if you want to live a godly life. Luke tells us why, what it means to be faithful. He describes Stephen in verse 15, all or and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, he's not here this morning, but this is not the description of some of you ladies when you see Trey Weaver. You understand. We're not talking about that angelic face. This is also not a statement in which you and I are start to wonder, what does an angel look like? Luke is actually trying to tell you something. He means something when he says he had a face like an angel because there was another man. Do you remember his name? Moses. The man that Stephen is blaspheming? No, it's that man who had a face like an angel in which he would go up on the mountain to meet with God, receive the law of God, and he would come down and the people had no idea what to do with him because he was transformed. And what Luke is saying here is that's what it means to meet with God. That is practicing the presence of God. When you meet with God, your life changes. 
People know that you are changed because you've met with them. There's something drastically different about you when you meet with God. Is that what people describe your life as? You have a face of an angel because you meet with God. You maybe have that picture in mind that Paul says, you shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. Last week, if you were here with us, Pastor Smith, he was preaching on Acts 6, 1 through 7. He talked about the men that we read about. All of them were Hellenistic. They had Greek names. One of those men was Stephen. Do you know what Stephen means in Greek? It means crown or garland. And what a fitting name for a man full of faith, of grace, would stand so tall that he would be crowned with the status of the first Christian martyr. Stephen. It's a picture of what it means to live well. It's a picture of what it means to die well. On the final day of Stephen's life, he lived like Christ. And that is how you and I can live. I hope that's us. I hope that's you. I hope that's me. I want to grow in that such that kind of grace. As a Christian, my family might say I'm full of faith and of the Spirit. I would really like them to say full of grace, but I'm probably further from that. But I want to stand firm on who Christ is. I want to be a soldier for Christ. That's what Paul's going to tell Timothy. Be a good soldier. Do not get involved in civilian affairs. Know who you are. Know what you've been called to do. We are preparing for an advent. That is the incarnation of Christ. We're celebrating that advent, but there is an advent in which we're looking forward to, and that is the return of Christ. And until that advent, we want to be a church and a people who are full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom, not so that we are full of ourselves, but that we might be faithful in the ministry in which God has given to us. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we give you great thanks because we read of what faith does. It justifies and makes us right with you because of the person and work of Christ and the power of the Spirit moving in us. And it's that same faith as you, Holy Spirit, would make yourself more and more alive that we might be faithful to proclaim the good news of the gospel. For many of us, that means we must proclaim it in word. We must tell people, I am a Christian. It means that my life is wrapped entirely in the person and work of Christ. But for some of us, we have said we are a Christian and we're not living such. We're not living a life of winsomeness and understanding. And so some of us need faith in the Spirit to produce a graceful and gracious character in our life. 
Lord, no matter who we are and where we are, we would ask by the power of your spirit now, would you fill us that we might, in fact, be faithful, faithful children and faithful soldiers of Christ Jesus. We pray it in his name.